It's so dappled back here. It's always causing a problem. CV. I'm on the television. Whatever you want to call it. I'm streaming. The 21st century. Streaming. Who would have thunk it? You know, it's funny. You think about, oh, we never got flying cars. You know, we never got moon cities or underwater bubble cities like Epcot. But what do we got instead? We've got Twitch streams. And I'm not saying that to disparage them, really. None of that shit's in there. If you think about it, like all that high modernist sci-fi, how much time do they spend on entertainment, you know? Uh, things like image transmission and the internet. There's nothing even close to the internet in any of that mid-century sci-fi shit. <coughs> but that's because they didn't realize that at some point... Uh, the deal was going to break down and people are going to have to replace any kind of uh, meaningful existence with a speculation and interaction with entertainment. So what is shock? That's where all of the actual sci-fi shit happened. Instead of having a moon city, I get to sit back here and talk to my phone, my telephone, and have thousands of people watch me over the course of... Uh, of the broadcast and its afterlife on YouTube. An entirely different uh, place to watch videos. And that's because if we had moon cities, if we'd actually been able to muster that sort of social resource to do that, we probably wouldn't have Twitch, realistically. We probably wouldn't have gaming as we know it as a culture because it wouldn't be necessary. It wouldn't be compensatory. We wouldn't be needing to compensate for lack of purpose and meaning in the rest of our lives, which were either underemployed, hyper-exploited, or in, in some way uh, uh, disenchanted. I mean, presumably, if you were on the moon, it wouldn't be just to be on the moon. It would be on the moon to do something, to be part of a project. But I'm actually kind of, uh, I don't know, I'm over, I'm over space travel. Realistically, it seems like it's cope. It seems like it's delusional cope by cultures and specifically super rich people to try to imagine that there's some, there's somewhere we can start over. A new America. Like, oh no, the American concept of, of, of endless resource uh, consumption to offset all social conflict, that's no longer viable in a closed circuit. It's no longer viable in a world market. It's no longer viable with, uh, with way too many, uh, way too much demand put of a biome for, for items, for pleasures, for gigaws, for Szechuan sauces and the like, for little uh, minions eraser tip things. So what if we do it to find another one? What if we go find some other new land to conquer, a new city on a hill, where we get to offload all of our social conflict once again by just 
grabbing what we want. It's not realistic. And more importantly, even if it was, it doesn't solve anything. It just puts it off a little longer. Puts off the final conflict a little longer. But that might be worth it if it was even close, but it's so far. Get out of there. Come on. Enough with the moon. Enough with Mars. Let's, uh, let's try to figure out this. I mean, I don't know how we're going to terraform another planet if we can't keep, keep Earth terraformed. The planet that was already terraformed when we got here. It was literally Terra. And we have managed to un-terraform it. That's how fucking bad we are at this shit. You really think we can re-terraform an entire fucking planet? Was brilliant indeed. How about you try re-terraforming before you start terraforming somewhere else? Okay, Chachi? So yeah, like uh, put chips in the heads of all the rich people where they, if, they, if they leave Earth's atmosphere, their heads explode. I want to ask you guys a question. This is relative to, I, God help me, it's a tweet, but I thought this one was one of the rare ones that you can use to, to, to reveal a larger point. And it was something that Jonathan Chait said today that got a lot of people upset. He was talking about uh, AOC's speech from last night when she uses a lot of intersectional language, the language of like the contemporary left as we understand it online, certainly. Uh, and someone calls that an outreach to millennial language. It's millennial language. Stuff like decolonization and xenophobia and fight in anti-racism, like these concepts. And Chade says, I don't think it's millennials. I think it's elite institutions. Now, that made everyone lose their shit because they saw the word elite, and, I mean, Chade's a dumbass who likes causing people to get mad at him, so you can't take his word for what he's trying to say. Like, elite is there to infuriate people because, God damn it, people love bristling over the concept of being elite. Uh, and they hate it, and they want to thrust it away like a hot potato. Because that's the fantasy that allowed America to shred its class consciousness over time. Is that, we, is that uh, we've made, the, we've made com being common a fetish of even our richest citizens. Which makes it much harder to see class as it actually functions in society. But anyway, so, you know the number of people I saw tweeting today who said, well, I've just got a degree from a state school, and I understand this. I just went to a small liberal arts school. You never have. And, you know, if you, I'll give people the benefit of the doubt that if you re read, there's a perfectly reasonable argument that if you, you read him from what he's trying to say, elite means like Ivy League institutions, like very selective schools. And that's not the useful way to talk about it. So fuck that. Fuck Jonathan Shade. He's an idiot. This is just a chance to talk about something that's real, even though the actual conversation is being had by dullards. Well, ignore what they actually said and pull out what is useful that they could have said so that you can actually make something interesting out of it that you could talk about. Because if you stay in the playpen fighting over the words of the actual moron and the meaning of the actual moron's words, then you will just be as dumb as they are. So... It's the way Trump has made everybody stupider by having to live in the world where his utterances are your entire daily uh, emotional reactive life. Anyway, if we strip the connotation from elite and we talk about like what realistically we're talking about when 
when because what's what's what does what does it mean when what is Chait trying to say? Chait is trying to say it's not millennial as in this this whole group of people. It is a subset of that group of people. Now, if he means elite by like Ivy League people, that's wrong. But there is another way of thinking of elite, shorn from class and shorn from the the prestigiousness of the institutions and the ties that relate to them, that is potentially realistic. Like, do you guys know what the percentage of adults who have a four-year uh, degree, minimum, have at least attained a four-year degree is in the United States? What do you think it is? What do you think the percentage of adults with a four-year college degree is? Off the, off the top of your head, don't Google it. Someone says 30, someone says 15, someone says 35, 25, it's 27 percent. As, as in, 20, in 2020, 20, 27 percent. That's not how you would imagine if you lived online and talked about politics online. Because the people conversating on all points, on all of these questions, whenever they come up, almost universally are among that 27%. So Chait is idiotically and, and provocatively and, and stupidly bumbling into a real observation, which is that AOC comes from a milieu of a subset of millennials, meaning millennials who went to a four-year college and absorbed the, the social vocabulary and etiquette of college. And I think that's a meaningful distinction. Now, it doesn't make them a different class. That's, the, that's these people want to like, because they want to spend all that time online, and the only way they convince themselves it means anything is if the discourse is the only thing that matters in the world. And that means that the fact that these people are now like at a separate class position relative to culture, to people who didn't go to college, then therefore they are the new ruling class. That's absurd. Uh, but it does mean that there is a cultural distinction that has to be dis to talked about when you're talking about all these other questions. Because... Uh, there is this distinct belief among a lot of people that the, that the college-based vocabulary of American leftism, all the stuff, all the intersectional shit we talk about, all, all the stuff about all the language of, of oppression and the language of white fragility and, and like racial centeredness, all this stuff that you learn in college, that it's bad, for, that racism exists and is bad. Those are the two things you learn in college. Uh, 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 misogyny is, exists and is bad. Like, that's the one-two punch. That's what college teaches you. Not everybody who goes to college has that feeling. A lot of people get alienated by that because it's so hegemonic. They get annoyed by it, and they become like the, the elite, the culturally elite of the right or, uh, or of, like, some third position trying to aggravate both because they're so alienated from either. Uh, and that they say that that language alienates potential allies among that vast swath that potential, the, those, those non-college educated people, those non-educated, they're seeing you do this stuff and they're getting mad at you. And just, even though they would love to sign on to socialism, you are making them either turn off completely or turn to uh, conservatism and reaction as a response. And the truth or falseness of that theory can never be tested because no one involved in the theorizing it is a member of the group they're talking about. Because all these conversations around, like, w how to talk about subjects and which subjects to focus on, imagine, they're creating an imagined non-college educated person. Because all the people in the, inside this bubble are, whatever their opinions are, members of that subgroup. They're not being observed. Or if they are, they can't know. They're in a black box. Because if they were on the other side, they wouldn't be there. Like, uh, the reasoning seems to be, 
these poor non-college educated but good-hearted people see you awful people with your awful, bitter, sectarian wokeness and absurd blaming of whiteness and whatever and making it, and then they turn away because that's what I would do if I was in their position. But they're not in their position. None of us are. We are in the bubble. And what's going on outside the bubble, we can guess at it, but we certainly can't have any kind of confidence enough to act from a premise and act like, no, no, I need to fight the battles of the internet. I need to joust online with these people because there's this audience of trolls that I'm imagining are there. That's in your head, dude. It's, it's just a different version of the same phenomenon in, 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 among liberals. Like the reason Biden's the nominee right now more than anything, and the, and the reason that there's all those Republicans uh, on, at the convention I mean, yes, obviously it shifts. It, it signals the general shift to the right of the Democrats over time, but in the in the in the near and now, like at, at, at the level of like decision making by voters, it's because they don't vote from a position of <coughs> um, what they want to see. They vote for what they imagine someone else, generally a con more conservative person than them, because they believe America is a conservative country because of their cultural surroundings, because we segregate by income and by by cultural attainment. And so they say, yeah, yeah, I don't care about Colin Powell. I don't care about John McCain, but some guy, some disaffected Republican watching Mike. Now, he probably doesn't give a shit, but one way or another, it doesn't matter because you can never know you're not him. You're just putting yourself in that position. But the whole point of them being in a different position is that they're not you. Does that make sense? It's all wish casting. What it is, is it's people laundering their own anxiety that they are in a bubble by projecting out a fantasy of another. Woke people do it too. Their, their, counter, their counter rejoinders always know. Like working class people are basically, they're all good hearted. They're all waiting. They're yearning to be connected to this network of beliefs that I all learned in college and that take a long time to get to for a lot of people because it's counterintuitive premises, especially from stuff you learn growing up especially if you tend to be white or male. And it takes a while to work through the process. You have to be committed to it. You have to be committed enough to fucking spend four years in a goddamn college and go into debt for the fucking privilege. You have self-selected. You don't know what they're thinking about any of this. You don't know that they're just waiting for some, uh, some real like son of the soil to arise, some Richard Ojeda guy to lead them to some unwoke socialist paradise. You have no idea. It's all in a box. And what it does is it allows you to deal with, ignore the real problem, the real functional problem that is far beyond any questions of what people are talking about or any issue that is on the agenda or, or any controversy or any podcast or anything. It is that there is no connection between these two groups. Culturally, they are seg separate. And the majority, we certainly know, of the non-college educated in this country do not process the alienation and horror of their lives through a political or class lens, which is the only way that class consciousness emerges. And traditionally, what made that happen was the close quarters and the, and the, and the, and the uh, social context of living as a working class person, which doesn't exist now and never really existed in the United States. And that is really the difference. When we talk about American exceptionalism, it boils down to the fact that our vastness of land and resources expropriated from natives who are not part of our political calculus could be exterminated, meant that we never 
created the 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 the, uh, the pressured situations, or very rarely anyway, like in pockets certainly, uh, immigrant pockets, for example, of of the East Coast, yes, but generally did not generalize a a single working class experience, uh, and and the class and the class got sort of bleached out of America as distance allowed people to live separately enough that the accumulated experience of living near fellow working class people dissipated. And that's the real challenge. And instead, people would much rather, because it's more fun and you can do it online, you can do it in your house, you can do it in your underwear, you can do it while jacking off. You can't do it, you know, it, it's easy. There's no, uh, there's no, there's nothing stopping you. And it's, and it's, and it's a nice place to dump anxiety and this, and sense of purposelessness in life. Uh, but it's not going to, nothing that is attained on that level, regardless of how it boils down to the, like people say, this stuff starts online and then it goes in the real world. Right. But it can never be stopped online. It can only be stopped in the real world. Not all gremlins are nude. That's absurd. Greta Gremlin is never nude. She's dressed in delightful silken fineries. Um, somebody asked if Huey Long could have ended the Great New Deal by, by splitting the vote in 1936. I honestly, considering FDR's margin in 36, I suspect, uh, and the reality of like the already existing like uh, uh, mechanism for red baiting that was being twirled up uh, by uh, by the powers that be, the Upton Sinclair campaign in California being like the the, the pr practice run, I don't think he would have stopped FDR from getting reelected. Hoover and Biden are very similar because they're both going to be in a position where they're going to be dealing with an unprecedented crisis that cannot be handled with any of the available tools that they use their entire careers, but with no willingness, ability, or willingness or ability uh, to change them. So something's going to have to break off and, sh and, 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 this sh and shatter this political uh, logjam. Oh boy. So the US so so it does look like China and Russia are trying to wean us off of the dollar globally. They're they're apparently cutting their uh their percentage of transactions that they're doing from 90 to 50. And I know China just bought literally tons of gold. Uh I mean, I still would assume this is hedging uh because nothing in the current situation makes me think that China is in a position to make that change right now. Uh but they're very, I mean, they're very wise to have an alternative. Like if the, if the Greeks had really like, had really taken the concept of, of leaving the Euro seriously, they could have won. But the thing is that the, 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 the Germans knew that they didn't. The, the Germans knew that they were bluffing.
And since the Germans knew they were bluffing, they were never going to get pushed off their position. Even after they won that uh, referendum, it didn't change the calculus. And the thing is, is that the way to beat that was not to have bluffed, or at least to have bluffed at a higher level of commitment, as in really making moves towards getting their own goddamn currency going again, instead of just saying we might do it in the future if we can't get a deal. Because they'll be like, yeah, no, you won't. Because at that point, it's too late. It would be nice if they came back to the drachma, because that's a great name. One of the best-named currencies, I would say. The drachma is great. Drachma. Wonderful. The zloty in uh, Poland, also delightful. The dong of Vietnam. How can you not love that? Uh, let me think of something. Uh, I, I always like colones, the, the uh, Costa Rican currency. Uh, ruble is just kind of fun to say. Rupee also. Shekel kind of seems anti-Semitic, honestly. Maybe it's just the K in there. It's like a comedy sound that you would use to make fun of somebody who really loved money. Lira is very nice, and I'm glad Turkey still uses the Lira so that it's still around. Franc is, one, sounds like you're sneezing, two, typically self-absorbed. Oh, yes, we're French, and it's the Franc. No shit. Fuck off. Kroner is fun. Kroner is like, all of the currencies in, in Europe like, that aren't Euro are all by like the relatively you know, high HDI countries that figured rightly that the euro wasn't in their interests, like in Scandinavia, and it's all kroners. Oh, that's the Quetzal in Guatemala. That's nice. Scudo? That's a good one. Dinars are fun. Give me that dinaro. I wish, this, I wish somebody had the Sesterci, the old Roman Sesterci. I always like that. It's a very, very dramatic name for a currency. Guilders are good. Ducats, of course. I have a ton of dinars. Somebody sent me a bunch of dinars. So I have, a, if, if they do the revalue, I am going to be a billionaire. Uh, one thing I don't like about the Chinese currency, right, is that it's the yuan, right, but also it's the renminbi. Pick one. What's wrong with the yuan? Just make it the yuan. Get out of here. Get out of here. People should need to get over the idea of AOC running for president. The president's not going to save anybody. We, the, the circuit's broken. It's not going to happen. Wish-casting presidents is just... Is just Learn helplessness at this point. People need to just get over the idea of the presidential. Bernie was different in a qualitative way and worth supporting for specific reasons. Everything else is just trying to imagine you can, you can have lightning strike twice, and I don't think you can. And when we saw the results with Bernie and the failure to activate that group I was talking about, like, Bernie didn't do it. Your fucking, like, argument over a Jacobin article isn't going to do it one way or the other either. Uh, like some 30 cholera account saying like that it's, uh, that it's actually ableism not to follow back is not going to fucking have any kind of impact if the fucking presidential, if the presidential campaign that had hundreds of, like what, tens of millions of dollars behind it wasn't able to do the fucking job. It's going to have to start from the st scratch, ground up. 
That does not mean not electoral. It means electoral at the local level. The only place you've seen any movement anywhere. And that's good. That's where it always starts. Oh, new rights started there. The new rights didn't start with President Barry Goldwater got his ass shellacked in 1964. But then they won, started winning uh, town councils, uh, school boards, incredibly importantly, school boards, local elections, uh, and then Congress. Then they started getting senators, and then boom, they got Reagan. They did not start with the president. The presidency started moving things. It was a momentum thing. And that was what Bernie was always supposed to be. So the better he did, the better it would work. That strategy of, of activating the movement, like in the core, where they get the core of the earth to start spinning again with the nukes, that was what Bernie was supposed to be. And I don't think, I don't think he absolutely failed. He certainly... Six, 2016 definitely started something, and 2020 continues it. It's just that it wasn't sufficient to do what anyone imagined they were going to do in their head, which, for most of the part, was delusional. Anybody who thought Bernie was going to get her universal health care passed, I'm sorry, was... If they needed to think that to keep going, good. But it was not realistic. The fight was supposed to build a social base for socialism. That was the best we could hope for. And so we got less than that, but we got more than nothing. But it's still, that's the process. The idea that you could just put another figurehead on top of this process, even though it has failed to get into its own, you know, circulation, it's failed to start the process, it's failed to kickstart the, uh, the perpetual motion, then it's not going to matter. So if you want to care about elections, and I don't think people shouldn't, I think that's silly and childish, then care about ones that can be won at the local level. And I know it's horrible to think of that considering how late it feels, but we have no idea how things are going to break. We don't think how things are going to break loose. We don't know what those conditions are going to be. You need, all you can control is what position you are in when those things happen. And that means finding the, 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 the smartest application, the most effective and efficient application of your energies, and then applying it. So that whenever things change, whenever the, 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 the fault lines crack and things start rolling downhill that we're rolling up, then you're somewhere that can meet that moment. And that is the thing that I can't tell you and that no one can tell anyone. That has to come from in them side. They have to clear all the fucking gunk off of their windshield, sit quietly, look at the life around them for really, instead of just reacting to shadows in their mind, really look at the conditions of their life and move forward. And you say, how will I know? You'll know. But we don't operate at that level, that level of clarity. We operate at this befogged level where we're always constantly entertaining and, and exercising uh, uh, a distraction on our own minds in order not to have to look, make, look through that clear pain at what's within and what's without. We would rather filter it through this layer of irony or distraction or, or mythic heroistic uh, self-conception or, or to carry off social media conflicts with one another that we charge with epic emotional and moral weight for no reason. That's why uh, the Pale King, someone says Pale King hours. Yeah, the Pale King was about like the spiritual, the magical uh, implications of the concept of boredom. Because if boredom is sat with, if boredom is is actually engaged instead of annihilated, you can get to some pretty profound realizations without anything getting, without needing any intervention, without needing to, to have the right moment appear to you where you get like, aha, 
That happens sometimes, but you can't guarantee it's ever going to happen. What you can do is actually try to be bored for a minute and listen. And you might get a little closer to figuring out what to do yourself. Someone wants me to rate Amy Klobuchar's feet posts. I will not. I will say is, let's dispense with the fiction that Amy Klobuchar doesn't know what she's doing. She knows exactly what she's doing. This is the second foot post she's ever done. This one is clearly intentional. She is, like all these people, an attention monster who ne whose ego is unsatiably huge. She ran for president, for God's sakes. So you know that she is aware of every meme related to her. She knows everything about, thro about, she knows everything about throwing the staplers and eating with the comb. She even tried to do a horrible, disgusting joke about eating with the comb. She's fully aware of everything that's ever said about her, which means she knows about the, her army of simps, and she wants, to, she wants to throw a little gasoline on that feet simp fire. And uh, I say more power to her. Not hurting anybody which she certainly would have done much more of if she was vice president. And whatever she's doing in the Senate, which I'm sure is monstrous. Wallerstein, world systems theory, very important, very good stuff. I think it's the only real way you can understand how capitalism actually spreads and interacts first with like different systems of, of local uh, social order and then eventually spreads throughout them. The, the capillary action of trade, like building veins that bring blood in and actually change the, 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 act, the, the, the structure of societies just through prolonged interaction. Someone asked, what's the deal with feet? I have a theory about the feet thing. Uh, I have no idea if it's true, like most of the things I say. It's just something that kind of makes sense to me. And that is that the foot fetish, the rise of the foot fetish, because like foot fetishes have already always existed, but they've gone from being marginal things like a creep in a James Elroy novel with a bunch of shoes in his arms or something to something that is now the most common fetish and one that is just sort of offhandedly is like if you want to suggest some sort of vanilla kink for a uh, for especially a, a white male character or a male character, a, a straight male character specifically, foot is the perfect, it's the first one. And it's like, it's mildly kinky or creepy, but it's not full. It's like the way that geekiness used to be this actual thing for actual social outcasts, and then fucking Marvel made it just everybody. Same thing with the foot fetish. Foot fetish is the Marvel movies of, uh, of, of kinks. And the reason for that, in my theory, is, is that the modern... A guy who grows up now and has grown up like in the last 30 years has for the first time in history been able to access from the age of uh, puberty, the age of horny, all of the pornography they've ever wanted, which in my opinion is a terrible thing and very bad. And I feel like, uh, like I'm of the last generation where nudity was a scarce resource. Like I have distinct memories around like videotapes that I owned uh, and... Uh, like taping things off Cinemax, like that kind of thing, uh, because it was it was scarce. You know, it was an incredibly precious resource back in my day. But of course, what that means is, you know, if your contact with something that you desire is less, then your enthrallment of it is not removed. And I think that if you can see like boobs, put it into a computer from thirteen, and just see every boob on earth. You're gonna eventually, boobs are eventually gonna be boring. You have to find another thing. 
And it has to still be like part of the body that is in general and in public hidden. And nowadays that basically means like ass or feet. And then so your brain basically rewires its desire circuit around the dead area where boobs used to be and uh, connects it to feet. And that's like the process of like being desensitized to pornography that makes guys, you know, addicted and make it hard for them to have sex for real is because of that process. So that's my theory. I don't know if it's true. I have not, someone asked if I've read Christopher Lash. I've only read uh, excerpts posted on Twitter. Uh, but I will say that uh, I wanted to mention him because in Reaganland, uh, Lash makes an appearance. Because when, Ra- when Carter was really fucked, like Carter was over a barrel with, with uh, gas lines and inflation, had no idea what to do, uh, and his numbers were tanking. And he could not get anything passed in Congress. Pat Cattle, his, like, uh, his wonderkind pollster uh, who had helped propel him to the presidency and who later on became like, uh, he was like the ba- favorite Democrat at Fox News during like, I think during the Trump, uh, Bush years. He would just come out and talk about how the Democrats sucked. They're losers. Uh, and trust him, he was the Carter guy, you know. But anyway, Pat Cattle had this like, revelation because he read lash and you're like oh my god the real problem with this the real problem we have here is not the fact that you know gas is incredibly expensive and people are waiting in lines for it or that savings are being destroyed by uh by inflation and the jobs are going away deindustrialized and 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 all that it's there's a spiritual void at the heart of america and he wrote this huge memo to Carter saying, we need a letter, we need to address America about its soul, not about its material conditions. And then Carter was blown away by the thing, and he read Lash, and then he had Lash be read by all of his like, top guys, Hamilton Jordan and all those, the, the, the Georgia Mafia guys. Then, and I had no idea this happened, like a month, before, I think or so, before he did the Crisis of Confidence speech that it came to be known as, he went to Camp David and went off the grid for over a week and had meetings with different groups of, of like spiritual and governmental leaders. Like he had a bunch of governors to ask them, like, what's going on in your state? Uh, he had a bunch of religious leaders and he had Lash. He invited Lash to Camp David and asked him, like, what should I say? What should I do? And Lash told him, you know, all this stuff about the heart. And he's like, well, what about, like, you know, what about energy prices? And what about credit and stuff? And he's like, I, I don't know. Uh, and eventually, Jimmy has, like, this Satori moment, like, I know what I need to say. And he, he get, they get together and they write the thing. Uh, and when they present it to the press before they're going to do the big thing, like, they present the idea before they... they uh, they had the actual speech. They handed out Lash to the reporters at the, con- at the conference. They handed the books out uh, to, to like, give them an idea of like, what they were actually going to be going for. And then he gave the speech, which was very well received at the time. It's remembered as him kind of eating shit, but, uh, and, and like it's an it's emblem of his impotence as president uh, and his lameness and the way he presided over uh, a domestic limp failure. But at the time, it boosted his approval rating. Uh, 
but of course, you know, then things happened. Fucking gas didn't get any cheaper, inflation went up, and the fucking hostages got taken. That didn't help. Um, and I just think it's really funny that now you got people like, oh, people need to read Lash. People need to read Lash. It's like, maybe some of the stuff I've seen is good. I certainly get, like, the vibe of what he's going for, you know? Like the, and I do think that narcissism is the condition of, of, of the self in neoliberalism. It's like hegemonic. Everyone's a narcissist. Calling people narcissists is almost banal. Because it's the only way that you are rewarded for operating or that the, that the ideology of the world around you makes sense. Narcissism is the only lens through looking at human at, at contemporary life that comports with what you're told it's supposed to be. So yes, of course we're fucking narcissists. And that means that we, we, uh, we tunnel blindly towards what we think is a greater good that is actually just our own worship of self. And even when we become political, we end up importing that narcissism with us. And that undermines our attempts to build solidarity. Uh, yeah, that's true. Absolutely. Uh, but I think it's funny, though, that at one point in this country, at a crucial hinge point in American history, in fact, the, the, one of the most important, the one that set the, the, the one that broke the back of American labor and led us towards hegemonic neoliberalism, the president, the president of the United States and his top advisors had all read Lash. <laughs> and, and we ended up fucked. And I'm not saying it's because they read Lash. I'm just saying that Lash didn't help. Tom Countryman rules. That guy looks like he has seen some shit. You know what he kind of looked like? He kind of looked like uh, the real-life version of... Uh... Oh, what's his name? Oh, God damn it, John. The guy, Saul Star from Deadwood. What the fuck's his name? John Hawks, that's it. Uh, he looks like the John. He looks like a real life version of the John Hawks character from Winter's Bone. Uh, terrifying. Teardrop. Yeah, that's it. He looks like Teardrop from fucking uh, Winter's Bone. Tom Countryman sounds like a like an alien trying to come to Earth through customs and just making shit up on their on their head. I am Tom Countryman. Hello, I am Tom Countryman. I'd like to be introduced to your country. I love it here. Hot dogs and sodas pop. Is he really the Undersecretary of State for International Security? Oh, he's one of the deep state guys. Uh, even, like, when they got a guy who looks kind of rough and tumble, he's still a fucking deep state fucking Langley ghoul. Amazing. Democrats never disappoint.
Man, Tom, Laura Loomer in Congress would be great. I mean, the funny thing is, is that even if she doesn't win, and I don't think she will, it's apparently a relatively safe Democratic district. Uh, but she, hey, it doesn't mean she won't. Is that she, even if she didn't get in, like even if she got in, she would not be the fucking craziest person elected. Because I think Loomer, I don't think she actually goes full QAnon, which is not true of the rifle lady, the rifle car, uh, restaurant lady from Colorado or the one from Georgia, both of whom are likely to fucking win. And they're both nuttier than Laura Loomer, which, think about that. Just get that in your head. Is, is QAnon this generation's fry core? What? They're all geriatric senior citizens who are on the computer all day. What? Yes, actually, they are this generation's fry core, because the guys who would have done that then are doing that now. Frycore, yeah, F-R-E-I-Core. It sounds like fry, but that is the correct pronunciation. I'm not going to roll my R's or anything. Frycore, it's Frycore. Oh, someone wants someone wants to to Monday morning quarterback the Soviet the the uh, the, the Polish Soviet war. It's one of the. It's that's like the Polish Soviet war is kind of like. A, like, Kron uh, Polish-Soviet War is Pickett's Charge for tankies. Or, uh, or whatever you want to call them. Because I think they like that name now. I'm not trying to, to, to uh, criticize anybody. USSR fans. USSR, the version of the USSR people, the version of, like, Lost Causers for the, for the USSR. They just think, oh, if they hadn't, if they'd just driven to Warsaw... And the funny thing is, is if, that, if anybody fucked that up, it was Stalin. <laughs> Which, if you're also loving Stalin, then you got to figure out a different reason that that war didn't go so good. Uh, let me guess. It was Trotsky. Well, the funny thing about people being called revisionists is that, I mean, if your stance is this USSR was, was good until... Gorbachev showed up, well, then you're a Brezhnevite, and Brezhnev had revised a bunch of shit from even Stalin. Uh, you know, if you're... If it's like Hungary and, Czech, and, and shit, then it's like, all right, Khrushchev, he did a lot of fucking revisionism too, and Stalin, I'm sorry, revised shit. It's all rev it has to be revised. It's a question of what you're revising it to. The idea that anything can be fixed in time and not applied to the circumstances of the moment, I don't know, man. It's not very... What's the word? It starts with a D. What's Trotsky's whole deal? I would define Trotsky's whole deal as a guy who couldn't make the tough call. A guy who wanted to have ice cream for dinner a guy who did not want to accept the moral responsibility of being at the center of a historical moment. And that's what the world revolution was for Trotsky. It was the thing that was going to come, cut through the impossible choice, the Gordian knot, and just slice it for him. Uh, and since it never happened, he was never able to be effective. And the thing is, is that 
At a certain point, if you can't answer the question before you, you have to re-examine your premises. And like, say, take, take, a, take the whole question of like industrialization or uh, uh, like creating a modus vivendi with peasantry using the market system. Bukharin versus Zinovia broadly construed. Trotsky, of course, wanted to rapidly industrialize, but at the same time, he recoiled at what he knew it would take to get that fucking grain out of those fucking pe from those fucking peasants. And he didn't want to make the choice because that choice was never supposed to have to have been made. That choice was supposed to have been obviated by the world revolution following shortly after the Russian revolution. Both Lenin and Trotsky were operating in October of 1918 from the premise that it would be the beginning of a world revolution. And for a minute, it looked like they would. They were. It looked like it might have happened. Then it didn't happen. And they had to improvise from that point. But they could not look back. And that was the problem. Like, you either have to say, like Stalin eventually did, all right, full steam ahead. There's no going back. The history runs runway, and this is the moral horror. If this is horrible, it might, it, that doesn't mean it's not necessary. Or you go like Bukharin, and you're like, you know what, maybe Martov had kind of a point. Maybe Russia really wasn't ready. In the absence of a world revolution, maybe Russia really wasn't ready for this. And, you know, this kind of, the consolidation stuff, like the capital accumulation, that's not really supposed to happen under us. That's supposed to happen, that's the, that's the dirty hands of capitalism. Like, our system is not built on blood the way capitalism will be. That's the whole, that's the whole brilliance of the teleology, the way we met, what we're acting on, or the morals we're acting from, is that we don't have to start a world, and the blood we shed will be righteous blood, the blood of revolution, the blood of, of punishment of criminals. It will not be wholesale exploitation and, and, and in, in human, instrumental, human instrumentation, human instrumentality, uh, because that work will have been done by capitalism. And, but that would have required taking a step back and going, maybe capitalism has to come back, which is essentially what Bukharin was arguing for, even though he wouldn't say it that way. He was like, look, this fucked up. Make a deal with the peasants, and this will eventually like, dissolve back into something like the bourgeois democracy that technically we all used to think you needed to have before you could get communism. Drop all our bullshit. We all used to think that until we decided we didn't think it anymore because the Germans didn't successfully revolt, and then after that we, could, we couldn't take Warsaw. And it's, you got to make a decision. Zinoviev and Stalin and those guys made theirs. Uh, Bukharin made his, but Trotsky couldn't make the choice. I think that was Trotsky's deal. And that's why Trotsky is a choice of very educated people because even the thought of making a morally monstrous decision is repellent because they, they enshrine their own sense of being the good ones, the, the, bet, the ones who have absorbed the theory the most successfully and therefore have comported personal morality with like acting in the world to be most in sync. Yeah, pilot, pilot the Eva, Leon. <laughs> uh. I, I'm talking about discrete choices and, and decisions. Obviously, they're all they're all predetermined to a degree, but people don't operate from that assumption. They operate from a illusion of free will that actually ends up being the stochastic stamping of space-time that propels 
history forward. You have the shape determined by material reality that is unbending, and then you have the random application of actions caused by the deluded human brains operating without full recognition of their environment. It does not, somebody asked, does it make considering counterfactuals pointless? It doesn't, because what you end up, I think you can't really distinguish, when you're talking about counterfactuals, you should, it should always be in reference to one another. What are more and less likely or possible or realistic counterfactuals? And that can be determined by saying what major change could have been caused. What's the biggest change that could have come from the smallest number of people either changing their minds or like randomly dying? before they're involved and somebody else replacing them. You know, like, and, 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 and from that, you can kind of uh, get the, the aperture of genuine, like, choice that any given moment allows the people making decisions. Uh, Jill Biden, man, that's a hell of a speech. I didn't really watch it. I just watched her looking like, looking like she was uh, a merry widow, honestly. Like, my husband of 27 years is dead, and now I'm back on the town. Dr. Joe Biden. I think she is a Lady Macbeth figure, because I don't think someone who really loved their husband would put him through this. Because there's no way she couldn't have put her foot down and, told, and made him not, not become president. I mean, the guy is, is clearly at sea and aware of it. And as such, probably very grateful for the few friendly and familiar faces that he sees every day. And that ground him and that keep him anchored. If she said, I'm not going to fucking go with you on this, he would be terrified. So she's doing it on purpose because she wants to be first lady or more. Maybe she wants to be Edith Wilson. But that doesn't mean that she is not uh, a, uh, uh, a hottie. She's definitely hot. So, well done. Did Bill Clinton look real or like a deep fake? Man, he sure looked... Uh, he looked bad, that's for sure. And man, all that charisma... because. I mean, I've seen the old speeches, and maybe it's just because there's no crowd, but I think, I think it's honestly his life force is, is finally draining. The adrenochrome has run out, I guess, after Epstein's death. Uh, is that he was just sallow and gravelly and not, he couldn't inflect anything. That thing really was like a, just a fucking, it was a funeral where, it was a funeral where the bodies were also uh, the guests. Like, the people doing the eulogy were also the uh, corpses. And the people attending were also the corpses. It was just like some sick undertaker just stacks up all of the bodies in the morgue and has them all sit in the, in the, at, the pulp, at, the, at the pews and then have one of them stand next to the, 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 uh, the casket. 
And then guess who's in the casket? Us. We're in the casket. Very grim stuff. People are loving this new game, Fall Guys. I've watched it. It looks very easy. I think I do very, very well, very quickly. You just run, you have a little guy run down a hill. That seems incredibly easy. Why would that be difficult? Seems like it'd be incredibly easy. I would, I would win every race. I might pay five guys. I'll definitely play. Here's the games we know we're going to play in the very near future. Uh, Fall Guys, sure. Katamari Damacy, the rolling up game. That looks fun. Uh, and Universal, Europa Universalis. I'm going to play that. I'll say it right now. Me and uh, Trillburn, a.k.a. Everett, a.k.a. Age of Napoleon, are going to try to create a, uh, a unified Italy under, under Venice. Uh, maybe even a continent-spanning uh, empire. So that's going to be fun. I want to be a universal doge. Even if they have to call me a king, in my mind, I'll be the doge. Oh, oh, yes, Napoleon Total War, we should play that too, for sure. Also, I want to try to see if I can, like, max out the Ottomans. Is there a game where you can try to have the Mongols take over Europe? Because that's a thing they actually could have tried. I don't think they necessarily could have succeeded, because they would have been too far from the steppe. All right, looks like Crusader Kings 2, you can try to have a Mongol conquest of Europe. I think I'd like to try that. No, no, I know that they didn't, uh, they were not stopped in Europe. They could have stayed, but it wasn't profitable. That it, wasn't, it wasn't the most useful place to go. They had other ideas. They had other things that were more focused on. But there's a way where like, they could have stayed, but I think it would have been problematic regardless. All right, dudes. I'm going to sign off a little early today. Keep it frosty. Uh, and stay hydrated. Bye-bye.